All right, the holiness of God. So we start out today, and <clears throat> I'm going to say at the outset that um, that this idea of holiness. Somebody's cell phone rang. I didn't look. I have. I'm going to say something about cell phones <laughs> later on. It doesn't mean that I'm talking about you, whoever you were. <laughs> it's just in the notes later on. Um, <laughs> on holiness. Um, the idea of holiness is not a simple idea. Um, and we're going to look at a number of verses in the Old Testament that give a sense of what holiness means. But here I'm going to start out again with a definition right at the beginning. <clears throat> God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Now, where do we get that? Well, we start out looking at this word holy in the Bible. There's a, there's a noun, an adjective, a verb, all related to this idea of holiness. Um, holiness, holy, or to make holy, or holy as an adjective. And uh, what does it mean in the Bible? Well, Leviticus 10.10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And I think that verse at least implies that something holy is set apart from common use. It's different. Holy and common are different. So something holy is not just common, ordinary use, but it's something that's set apart. And then it's uh, also, I think, with kind of an ABBA structure here, uh, holy and clean would be related. Something holy is set apart from common use and is clean and pure, <clears throat> and so holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. Um, there are some examples of things that are holy in the Old Testament. In the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, there was a holy place, and then the holy of holies. And these were places where the ordinary people couldn't go. They were set apart and that was the place where God himself most fully manifested his presence in the Holy of Holies. So it was dedicated to God's own presence, to God's own honor. Uh, Exodus 26:33, the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. The most holy place was the place most set apart from the rest of the world, most set apart for God and devoted to his presence. Um, there's another example of a day that is set apart from ordinary use. In the Old Testament, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That is, it's set apart, set apart from the ordinary uh, days of the week and uh, set apart for uh, God's glory and uh, God's uh, purposes. So it was a day set apart from ordinary use, a day devoted to honoring God. So this idea of being set apart and being devoted to God are both there. Um, and uh, Exodus 29:44 in English it doesn't use the word holy. It says, "I will consecrate the tent of meeting, consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests." But it's from the Hebrew verb kadash, which means to be set apart, consecrated, to be holy. And so, in other words, another way of saying this, God is saying, I will make holy the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will 
make holy, to serve me as priests. So again, these are set apart from ordinary use. It isn't just a tent that people cooked in or camped in or something like that. It's a tent where God's presence was manifested. And Aaron and the priests, they were set apart from ordinary activities of, the, of ordinary life, and their lives were to be, to be devoted towards serving God in the tabernacle. So all these things were set apart from ordinary tasks and from impurity, <clears throat> and were dedicated to serving God and honoring him. So we get the idea of holiness. Um, holiness thus includes both a relational quality, it's something set apart from ordinary activities and devoted to God, and a moral quality, it's set apart from sin and from impurity. And something that is holy is devoted to purity and seeking God's honor. So I'm, that's why I said it's kind of a complex idea. It isn't an idea that we really capture in a single word in English um, because we have to explain it using, using a number of, number of words. But that's the idea of holiness. Now, God himself is holy. And in Isaiah 6.3... When um, Isaiah has this um, amazing vision of God on his throne, I'll, I'm going to read a little bit of the context. Um, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6.1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Now, what are these? These are heavenly creatures. We don't know too much about them. The Bible doesn't talk about them very much. Seraphim, but it describes them. They have six wings. With two, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. So this, this, this voice crying out, proclaiming God's holiness, it's just so powerful that the whole place is shaking. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah, man of God though he was, taken up into God's presence, this amazing spiritual privilege that he had, his reaction when he's brought into the presence of the holiness of God is to say, Woe is me. And he's aware of his impurity. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He knows his speech hasn't been pure. He trembles with fear because he's brought face to face with the holiness of God. And so uh, the question is then, um, what do you do in God's presence? I think the experience of Isaiah tells us that when we are in the presence of a holy God, we don't think about anything else. We think about God, and we honor him. Everything in the presence of God is devoted 
100% to seeking his honor. God is a consuming fire. And in his presence, everything that's trite and trivial and insignificant and petty, and not really related to God or serving his purpose, all of that has no place. So here is where I had in my notes. What do we do in the presence of God? We turn off our cell phone. <laughs> but I mean, that's when I thought, you know, how am I going to get rid of kind of the, 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 uh, the demands of the world and the kind of things that clutter up ordinary life? Well, a cell phone kind of, or, or email, I mean, that kind of, uh, or the newspaper, that not that these things are morally wrong in themselves, but in the presence of God, everything else seems so unimportant. In the presence of God, we silence our chatter. <clears throat> In the presence of God, <clears throat> you banish your petty fears and your complaints and your grumblings, and you fall down in awe and reverence. And then, like Isaiah, I think you and I would tremble with fear. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But then, the joy in your heart, I think, will overcome your fear as you realize you are not consumed and you worship. Isn't that what happens to us in the presence of God? <clears throat> when we realize we're not consumed, we realize by the merits of Jesus Christ that he's purchased for us access into the presence of God that we can come boldly and not tremble in, and, not, and, not, and not, not at least be judged and condemned, that our fear, I think, would be coupled with joy and we would worship. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. <clears throat> Last week I talked about how God's goodness is the foundation <clears throat> for our being able to praise him. <clears throat> because if God were not good, we would not want to praise him. If he were evil, we, nothing in our heart would want to say, oh, we worship you. But God is good, and so we're free to praise. And now here, there's a connection between God's holiness and praise. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Why? For the Lord our God is holy. That is, I think that the psalmist recognizes that in holiness is something worthy of worship. Exalt him, worship him, because he's holy. That is, if you take the opposite. If God were impure, unclean, or had some touch of evil in him, you wouldn't want to worship him. But he's, he's pure and holy and therefore worthy of all worship because there's, all, because, because there's, there's holiness that fills his character. But now what about the people of Israel? How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel 
They tested him. They grieved him. They provoked him in the wilderness. And he's the Holy One of Israel. And, and I think the psalmist is just so grieved that people would act that way when God's holy presence was with them. What then should we say about application to our lives of the doctrine of God's holiness? Application. Well, first, I think we should always feel deep reverence and awe when talking about God or thinking about God or praying to him. He is holy. He is holy. And um, I think, honestly, this is rare today. Why? Probably because we are not often enough aware of God's genuine presence. And then sometimes when in prayer or in worship, a strong sense of the presence of God comes upon us, think we may tend to joke or change the subject or grieve the Holy Spirit because we are uncomfortable. We are uncomfortable with holiness and reverence. And I, I include myself here. Um, I, I don't think there is often enough a sense of reverence uh, in the presence of God. Uh, and, and a knowledge of his, his profound holiness. So that's number one. Number two, God commands us to be holy, for he is holy. Um, and this is a theme that runs throughout Old and New Testament. Leviticus 19.2, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that's picked up in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1.15, As he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, and here he quotes Leviticus, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm going to just read the verse before that, which I didn't copy here, but, um, but Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That is, what's holiness? Well, it's not the kind of desires and passions, the kind of sinful desires that Peter's saying that you had before you were a Christian. <clears throat> Don't follow those, but be holy. Be set apart from the, the wrongful desires that people have who just live in the world. And I, I think that though, though, you know, we always want to be sensitive to and welcoming to unbelievers who come to church or come to visit or, or come, you know, uh, uh, maybe to, to meet among us. And so maybe that, and that's a good thing, but that may also contribute to our reluctance to let ourselves feel deeply a sense of reverence in the presence of God because unbelievers are not going to understand that. It's going to seem strange to them. It's going to seem kind of weird. We don't want to be weird. But <clears throat> you shall be holy. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As he who called you is holy, be, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Hebrews 12, 14, strive, this is to believers, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or Hebrews 12, 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So we have a call to holiness. Okay, Kitty. Jesus, Jesus himself um, personalized God and made us feel like we could call him Abba Father, which he says, and we could sit on his lap, so to speak, yeah. and talk to him. So doesn't that, how does that balance um, what you're talking about, about holiness? Good. That's one of those things where the Bible says this and it says this. And we have to hold them both together. And, you know, and it says God is holy, yet he's our father, that we can come into his presence. And so I, I think it's possible to have a deep reverence and fear of God and yet still come into his presence in a way that we feel welcomed, but we're not disrespectful and we're not trivial, you know, and just... Let's see if I can think of some human example. Oh, yeah, then C.S. Lewis talking about Aslan the lion. He's good, but he's not safe. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's a kind of a, a literary illusion. This, this great, powerful lion, <clears throat> he's kind and he's good, but you know he's powerful. Um, another example might be um, if you somehow got to have dinner with the President of the United States. You say, oh, I'm here having present dinner with the President of the United States. But you don't take a cell phone call when you're having dinner with the President. I mean, that'd be really disrespectful. Or, excuse me, I've got to go write some checks and pay some bills. I'll be back in a few minutes. That is, when you're meeting with the President, you're just focused on the President of the United States. And if that's true about a, on a human basis, then how much more if it's with God? I don't know if that's helpful. Margaret? I was just thinking with Mary and Mar Martha, when um, Mary came to Jesus and she and he raised Lazarus from the dead, there was this awe and respect and yet tre tremendous compassion and mercy. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it wouldn't kind of be like that, mm -hmm. where you know that... He is God, and yet you also know that he is your deepest friend and knows the secrets of your mm -hmm. heart, and so you feel really safe. Mm -hmm. I don't good. know. Good, another good example where just how imagine how you'd feel sitting down at a table with Jesus, and he's sitting there eating, with, eating, eating dinner with you, and yet your brother's sitting next to you. He'd been dead four days, and Jesus just said, Lazarus, come out. And he came from the dead. I mean, how would you like to be sitting next to someone who just did that? Or, or the disciples out in the boat where Jesus just gets up and he says to the winds and the, and the storm and the waves, be still, and pow, everything's still. Well, I'm going to tremble if I'm in the presence of Jesus and he just does that. Even though he's kind and he's forgiving and he's gracious, but there's still an element of, whoa, well, how am I to be here? Yeah, is that helpful, Kitty? 
I think it's one of those things where, as I was getting ready with the lesson, I thought people are going to think, well, yeah, but wait a minute, isn't God our friend and our father and everything? And that's true, but I think that we've talked about that so much that it, it's just overdone in our culture today, and we have missed this idea of holiness. Uh, Sandy? What occurs to me is <clears throat> that unless we have a profound sense of the holiness of God, we will not have our hearts, um, our hearts will not be swelled with the gratitude mm -hmm. that we should yeah. experience for the fact that we can yeah. come to our almighty Abba and, as it were, yeah. sit on his lap and lean against his chest and hear his heartbeat of love yeah. for us. Yeah. In Hebrews 10:12, I'm sorry, uh, 1020, I think it talks about Jesus being that new and living way into the presence of God. Yeah. And without an adequate grasp of the holiness of God, we will not come anywhere near grasping the incredible privilege yeah. we have. Good. So here, it's not just, oh, we have to hold the A and we have to hold B. The Bible teaches both. But it's the more deeply we appreciate A, the more valuable B becomes. That is, they strengthen each other rather than destroying each other. So God's sense of God's holiness makes us more thankful for the privilege of being able to come to God without fear that we'll be eternally punished or condemned. Scott, good to have you here. Thanks. I was thinking that this is transcendence and imminence yeah. and the balance. And, and if you go back in church history, the Roman Catholic Church or even the Anglican Church, was more mysterious and you know the service was performed way at the back of the yeah. altar and there was yeah. a curtain it was almost Hebrew in a way and mm -hmm. and uh, God was mysterious he was king mm -hmm. but then the Puritans had a different arrangement where you know they were their sanctuaries were rectangular and the, and the seats were all in a semicircle and they could all kind of come close to the altar because they saw God as father but he's both he's king and yeah. his father good. transcendent good. and imminent good good that's really helpful God has transcended high above us, greater than us, and we should tremble. And, but he's imminent. He's near us. He's with us. And we should be immensely grateful. And, you know, in terms of how that affects us, um, when we pray here in class, when we pray in our small groups, when we sing praise in the worship service in the next hour, when we come into the worship service, I think a whole lot of it's just an, it's an attitude of heart that will reflect itself in our conversation and our demeanor and our, our actions. But uh, it's the hard attitude of we're coming to the presence of God. Okay, be holy, be holy. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Number three, I think as I look through the New Testament, it encourages us that we should be holy not just as individuals, but as a people. <clears throat> the Old Testament example is this in Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Kitty, there, I mean, there's still this idea of God loves us and cares for us. You should be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. The priests could come into the presence of God and they were going to be a whole kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So it's not just holy individuals, but uh, a holy nation. That is, as a nation, they would 
reflect and show and imitate God's holiness. And the New Testament fulfillment is that we should be a holy church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Here Peter is picking up that Old Testament language. You are a holy nation. It's not just the Roman Empire that they lived in or the um, different provinces in Asia Minor that Peter was writing to. That's, that's the nation. But, but you are, as a church, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as a group, we are to be holy. And Ephesians 5.26 and 27 tell us that Jesus is working progressively to make his church more holy so that he might sanctify her. Having, this is, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Why? Not just so our sins could be forgiven and we're welcome to heaven and short-circuit all that happens in between but that stuff would happen in our lives now. That he might sanctify her, that means actually to make holy, to make pure, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I think that that means worldwide, but also locally we are to, thank you, Bob, that that even locally we are to grow in holiness as a people of God, to grow in holiness as, as a church. Not just we're the same as we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but individually and as a group there should be a sense of holiness, I think a sense of reverence in God's presence, when we meet together as a church. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Until I was preparing this lesson two days ago, I hadn't, I don't know if I'd ever thought about that. That as a church, we should be increasing in holiness as a people. Our church is today growing in holiness as a people. Is our church doing this? Is our class doing this? Now I'm going to ask you a couple questions. What did you bring to class this morning? Anything that you would not want to bring into the presence of God? Anything in your heart? that you wouldn't want in the presence of God if you were in the presence of God as Isaiah was? Did you bring anything in your relationships that you would not want to bring into the presence of God? Anything in your appointment book? Anything in your... hmm, just anything in your attitudes of mind that you wouldn't want to bring into the presence of God? Are we growing in holiness? Now, and then I ask myself, why 
why do people not think much about this today? I wouldn't have thought about it, except I had this list of attributes of God that I was working through, and a month or two ago, Bob was getting some feedback from people saying the class was getting too academic and we need more application to life, so I'm trying to do a little more application to life, and I thank you for that. But why? Why do people not think much about holiness today? Here's one suggestion. I think perhaps... In past generations, there was genuine revival, genuine repentance, genuine manifestation of God's presence, and genuine holiness of life growing out of a deep heart desire to please God and be holy before him. And then in the next generation, perhaps some pursued holiness from a pure heart, and others just went through the motions, and then perhaps by the third generation, there were just rules and regulations and lists, and people tried to enforce holiness of conduct without holiness in the heart. And then it all seemed to people to be legalistic, and it engendered pride and self-righteousness and all sorts of judgmental attitudes, and it, it just felt legalistic to people, and people maybe have a memory of what that feels like, and it doesn't feel like it's genuine, it feels like it's fake, it feels like it's an attempt at holiness in the strength of the flesh, an attempt at holiness apart from the genuine presence of God, and people say, I don't want to go there, and that's right, I don't think we want to go there. But probably people have never tasted genuine holiness that comes from the heart when we know we are in the manifest presence of God. It's interesting that we have in a younger generation, I mean 20-somethings, 20, 20 <clears throat> a number of them turning back to more formal liturgical church services, like Episcopal church services and things like that. And uh, Scott, you just mentioned that. But there's a hunger in people's heart to have a sense of reverence in the presence of God. And there's, they're looking for something old. This seems like it's distant. It's old. And maybe there's something in that. I don't know. And I'm not saying we should change our style of worship or anything. But I think it does have to do with our heart attitudes of reverence and purity and the longing for purity in the presence of God. Bill? Wayne, I was just convicted of something in this. Wayne, I was just convicted of something a couple of seconds ago. And uh, I thought, if I'm meeting God, would I bring this coffee mug in here? Yeah. Would I be tipping it up? while I'm in the process of meeting God, mm. and I don't think so. Mm. If, I were, if I were meeting our president, I'm sitting in the Oval Office, would I bring my coffee cup with me? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. So I think, you know, yeah. this, this is very convicting to me of what you do yeah. when you meet a holy God. Yeah. Yes. And I and I I understand and I and I think God's doing something in your heart and touching your heart. But I don't want to make a rule, don't bring coffee mugs here. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So there's a kind of let God do what he does in your heart and, and if uh, if John wants to bring his coffee mug, okay, bless him in that and just there's but there's there's individual things that I think God's gonna convict us of. Um without having us to make rules or anything, but, <clears throat> but there's something in our hearts that should go on. And I know that coming into a class like that, it's different from coming really just into a worship service. I think when we're together in the worship service, it, it, there is a higher sense of 
we're coming for the purpose of worship. And here there is a fellowship and a camaraderie and things that we enjoy too. And so I, um, there's different kinds of holiness that's appropriate. And there's a holiness of conduct that's appropriate when you're out in the workplace with a lot of non-Christians. But see, there's a different kind of holy, but there should be a sense of God's presence with us all the time. And it varies according to the different circumstances. So, hmm. But it's, I'm just I'm just thankful to be thinking about it. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think um, when we've attempted to be a welcoming church, church in quotes, um, and maybe not as stuffy or quiet, and, and we've we've tried to welcome people yeah. that were turned off by liturgical um, yeah. kind of things. I think we've opened ourselves up for this casualness. Yeah. And somehow we have to put the two together, yeah. still be welcoming, but still um, yeah. present an atmosphere of holiness Good. that you sometimes don't see because everybody's talking and you know being what, very casual. What's your name? Chuck. Chuck, Chuck yeah, yeah. Thanks again, because that's one of those, the Bible teaches us this and this. And we hold the both together. And we're welcoming, we're loving, we're, but, and, and we're kind, and we don't want to put people off, but, but is there a sense of reverence? That, that uh, we are God's people, and we're a holy people. And that should carry through our lives, uh, but especially uh, when we come together. Okay, well, I just, I just want us to think about that. Uh, what are some things... Oh, growing in holiness involves removing from our lives things that defile us, that make us impure before God. And Paul uh, writes this to the Corinthian church. Very interesting. After God's promise that he'll be with us, he'll be a father to us, he'll dwell among us. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Interesting. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And Paul's writing to the whole church. He's writing to Christians. And I, I don't know, let us. I guess he's including himself. What are some of the things that are keeping you from holiness of life? How about, and again, I want to be so careful here because I don't want to make rules and just kind of, I don't want to add on to the rules of the Bible. And every time I'm going to mention something, somebody's going to say, well, yes, but what about, yes, but what? And I, okay, you keep your yes, buts, and that's fine, and I understand that, and, and there are different contexts in which different things are appropriate. But it is a matter of the heart, and it is a matter of how, and, and Bill's just such a great example here. He's saying, God convicted me of something. And that's what I think should be happening, that there will be individual ways in which God is convicting you of something. But... What about, are there things that are keeping you from holiness of life? What about entertainment? What about where you focus your mind and your thoughts? And there's a lot of room for reflection here. I got, done, I got done preparing this lesson, and I went in the other room, and it's just, Margaret and I were just about getting ready to go to bed, and I kind of just flicked through the channels on the TV, and no, 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 no. There was so much that when my heart was set on God's holiness, that I just said, wait a minute, either it's trivial or it's, or it's sinful or it's just foolishness or it's just no, no. Now, am I saying you shouldn't watch TV? I didn't say that. But I said, if there's a sense of holiness in the presence of God, it's going to affect 
what we delight in and what we seek after and what we enjoy, where we focus our mind. Computer time, what we focus our minds on. How about attitudes toward other people? Are there impure attitudes? Things that we wouldn't want to bring into the presence of God that we're cherishing in our heart, maybe a grudge or maybe just some sense of bitterness or other things. How about impure words that you wouldn't want to speak in the Lord's presence? And then Paul mentions defilement of the body. Defilement of the body. Are there things that are defiling our bodies? Are we defiling our bodies by some kinds of conduct or action? What are some things that are keeping you from holiness of life? And it's all in this idea of remember that we come into the presence of God, not just on Sunday mornings, but also whenever we pray, but also in a sense through our whole lives. We're to be lived in the presence, our lives are to be lived in the presence of God. And then looking forward, Zechariah promises a time when the whole earth, everything on earth will be holy to the Lord. And you can get this kind of poetic imagery that he mentions some things by way of telling us about all things. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. You could say, on the cockpits of the airplanes, or on the hoods of the cars. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. That's all the cooking things that you have in your kitchen. Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Interesting. Zechariah prophesies that time when all the earth will be set apart from sin and devoted to the Lord's service and his honor. So that's holiness. Any other comments on that or questions? Um, um, Robin. Oh, we got a, yeah, Rob, there's a microphone here. Right here, right here. Okay. This is about us and our church and the environment that we're in here, but what about the holiness of society and our place in, in that? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. What about the holiness of society? I'm going to give a really short answer. That was really short, wasn't it? Um, a long time ago I talked about civil government. I think we should seek to have our government make laws which are consistent with God's moral standards in the Bible. But when I say moral standards, I don't mean that everybody has to be Christians because I want to allow freedom of religion and defend Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and everybody to build their own houses of worship and there's freedom of religion. Religion cannot be compelled by the government. But in terms of moral standards, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, those kind of, and the implications of that, those I think should be embodied in the laws of society. Um, so we should support the uh, Protect Marriage Arizona <laughs> uh, amendment for, or the uh, campaign for instance because because God's laws are good in terms of people's moral conduct, 
in general. And that's what Christian ethics is about. But beyond that, there are some complexities. We, we, we can't force people to have a heart attitude of holiness when they don't trust in God. But we can. But the government should encourage and reward conduct that outwardly conforms with God's moral standards. Um, even though we can't deal with the heart, laws can't deal with inward attitudes of heart uh, generally or religious questions. So, um, But we are salt and light, and so our, our influence has an impact on our neighbors. It should, our manner of life. And when we have a sense of purity of life, there will be a, a positive influence, I think, on our neighborhood and our community. So, what else on holiness? Anything else? Yeah, in the back here. What's your name? Uh, my name is Dennis Chancellor. Dennis. Um, this whole thing of holiness is enraptured inside of sanctification for believers. Yep. We are unique people. We're called out from all the people of the world to be holy in the presence of God. And he, he allows us to understand holiness through the process of sanctification. He has set us apart for his unique service in all the world. The propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to bring more and more people into the presence of God through sanctification yeah, yeah. and holiness. Okay, yeah, I, I agree with that, Dennis. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you brought that in because we talk about sanctification as part of the Christian life. Sanctification is, that's a word we generally use in English, but that just, that just is a, trans, that's a Bible word, translates the Greek word hagiatso, which is the word for holiness. So sanctification just means becoming more holy. Um, so it's really the whole of the Christian life that we're talking about then. So good, thanks. Okay, what I want to do before we sing Holy, 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 and maybe another song, we'll talk, we, Bob sent, gave me a note and said, we don't have to get out at 9.15, first Sunday of the month, this month, because there's no kid stuff in here. So I've got 10 more minutes. So I'm going to try to do this second attribute of God, which is related to holiness, as the attribute of peace or order. Uh, it isn't usually included in lists of attributes of God, but I included it because there are verses that talk about God being a God of peace. What does that mean? God's peace means that in God's being and in his actions, he is separate from all confusion and disorder, yet he is continually active in innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled, simultaneous actions. Whew. Um, 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And that word confusion, the Greek word akatastasia, is disorder, confusion, unrest. It's used of the tossing of the waves in the sea, in a sea, it's, it's a stormy sea. It's all confusion and disorder. God is not like that. He's a God of peace. And in 1 Corinthians 14.33, Paul uses it to apply to the worship service. Don't let everybody talk all at once, but... One at a time. God isn't a God of confusion, but of peace. And uh, may the God of peace be with you all. He's the God of peace. Of Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Peace at all times in every way, the Lord be with you all. So the Lord of peace. Application, this attribute of God. I think we should also praise God for his peace 
and be thankful that he is this way. How would you like to have a God that's full of confusion? <laughs> you wouldn't want to praise, but, but everything is well-ordered and, and done well, and, uh, and, and there's peace in God's presence. And he wants us to imitate his peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's one thing that the Holy Spirit increasingly works within us as we grow in holiness. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the peace of God, I think it's not just the absence of conflict, but this idea of peace retains the Old Testament idea of shalom, shalom, peace. It's an idea in which all is well. In, in your life and in your surroundings, there's a sense of completeness and security and wholeness because all of life is lived in the presence of God and all of one's relationships and activity have his direction and favor on them. Shalom. Everything's right. Everything's... And, and peace isn't... It doesn't quite get it in the English language because, because peace just kind of means stillness and no, no conflict. But this is more... It's not just stillness, but it's everything is right. Everything is, is ordered and, and uh, in the presence of God. Peace, in this sense, does involve, however, an absence of frantic striving, worry, anxiety, fear, panic, confusion. God has none of these qualities, and I think as we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, we'll have less and less of those things in our lives. And you know what happens? Just when you think you've got it, and you're doing well, God brings a new stressful situation into your life, and there's more of a challenge to retain God's peace in the midst of a harder situation or more, more things going wrong at once or something like that. So there's a, there's a challenge there. But a caution, God's peace does not imply inactivity, but peaceful, well-ordered activity. Look, the God of peace and God the Son as well, Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds the universe by His word of power, and this Greek word is a present participle that implies ongoing activity. God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is continually carrying along or upholding the universe by his word of power, keeping all the stars and the planets in their place and helping everyone. And so there's a lot of activity going on in the midst of this God, God of peace. God of peace. And John 5:17, but God answered them, but Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. That is, there's continual activity on God's part. Psalm 121.4, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So it's not inactivity, but it's, it's everything is ordered and right. By contrast, unbelievers do not know God's peace. There is no peace, Isaiah 48.22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked, Isaiah 57:20. And I was trying to think about this. For unbelievers, what does it mean that there's no peace in their lives? Well, some examples. Constant conflict among nations and ethnic groups around the world. Just when one conflict gets settled, another one pops up, and that has been true of the history of the world. And it's not going to end until Jesus comes back to reign as king over the earth and reign in perfect righteousness on the earth. Or among school children in our schools. <laughs> no peace. My, my brother, was just, he just did some substitute teaching in Rice Lake, Wisconsin in a high school, and he said, oh, there are a lot of good kids in there, but a couple are just 
troublemakers, and uh, the principal wouldn't do anything about it, and it was hard. Why? No peace. Unbelievers' lives, just disruptive. Other examples, I'm not going to say all, but some modern art or modern music, I mean, you start going through the channels on the radio as you're driving, and there's some music that has no peace to it, isn't there? A lot of, yeah, a lot of music. It just can, it's not, it's not characteristic of God's nature, some of that music, or modern dance. What about suburban families' pattern of life? <laughs> can it be that it's so, or our patterns of life, can they be so filled with too many things uh, that there's no peace? Are there areas of your life, by application, where you would like God to give you more peace or where you should establish more peace? 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Galatians 5.23, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and of wisdom. The ways of wisdom are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. So we should, I think, keep in mind this idea of being in God's presence growing in holiness, but also, along with that, growing in a sense of peace where things are right in our lives. Oh. Okay. So now we've got four minutes. I have time for about one question, then I've got one question on peace. How, do you like that? Would that be good to have a life of holiness and peace? Yes. Ruth, yes? You're with us. Okay, good. Good, I think so. And you know what? As I know about some of your lives, there are lives of peace and holiness in here. I'm not saying that you're not that way, but I'm saying there's still a challenge um, to grow in these ways. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, you are the high and holy one who inhabits eternity. And yet you dwell with us. And you say you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. And so, Lord, we, we think on your holiness and your peace. And we are in awe of who you are. We know that in your presence, your presence is a consuming fire, that there is no impurity that belongs there. We come into your presence. We offer ourselves to you. And Lord, just at this moment, we ask that you would forgive and then cleanse away from our hearts those habits of life, those patterns of thought, those kinds of activity that are not pleasing to you and do not belong in your presence. Help us this week to have a greater sense of your presence with us in the worship service now to follow and then in the week to come. And convict our hearts in ways that they need to be convicted, Lord, that we should walk in holiness of life before you. And Lord, we do that because we believe that as we do that, there's blessing in it and you will draw us even more fully into your presence. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.